0: After 30 years of serving East Texas, you learn a few things. Things like service beyond compare, going the extra mile, leaving it better than you found it. We believe you should expect the best and get it. For more information on how you can schedule your appointment today or take advantage of our seasonal promotions, visit alcoair.com, license number P-A-C-L-A-238-12C and M-41085. This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you my new deep dive into a case. But my mom isn't the only one who joins us weekly. Often, we strive to bring on a special guest, someone close to these cases, the victim's family, experts in the field, the wrongfully convicted, and even survivors of violent crime. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on for you to get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. just wanted to hop in here real quick and apologize for part two being a couple days late. I had a mouse fiasco and that might sound crazy to some people. And what would that be the reason for your episode coming out late? But uh, they are basically my biggest fear. It is such an irrational phobia. I would be hard pressed to say I'm the most terrified person of mice on earth. And the night I was supposed to edit this episode, I saw one mouse in my house. Whew. It's fall season. I think it just was coming in trying to get warm and it freaked me the heck out. So I have spent multiple days in panic mode uh, doing, you know, mouse prevention and making sure that that never, ever, ever happens to me again. <laughs> so to make it up to you, I will be releasing part three and the final part of this um, case out to you guys by the end of this weekend, and you will still have a new case out next Wednesday. So hopefully you'll forgive me. This is part two of Susan Savakis and Michael Hughes, A Maze of Deceit. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be extremely confused. Go back to episode 65 and listen to part one. This case has so many layers and it, it, it's so confusing. So again, big shout out to Matt Birkbeck, who wrote the books. I could not have navigated this case the way I did without his books, Finding Sharon and A Beautiful Child. I said those backwards because A Beautiful Child came first and then Finding Sharon is the sequel. He also shared our episode on his social media. So basically obsessed with him. That was so sweet of him to do. I loved his books. Again, highly encourage you guys to read these books if you want just a crazy, crazy deep dive into the case and you want all the details. With that, let's jump right back into this. Are you ready for part two? First, I thought it would be funny to talk about those reviews or at least that one. Yesterday, you guys, I was reading the reviews and like, I feel like every podcaster reads them, but people might not think you do. And someone said it was disturbing that I couldn't say my T's. So I just made like a little joke out of it and shared it. But what's funny is I've had three people tell me that it's an Idaho thing.
1: I went back and listened. I feel like I can hear your (laughs) T's. (laughs)
0: It was just so funny. I mean, it was a three star review, not a one star. So I mean, thanks for the three stars. And it said the research and stuff was good, but it just disturbed them. I don't say my T's. I was trying to think of it. There's certain things that I've listened back on and I'm like, ugh, I hate how I don't pronounce that or like certain words That I don't finish out. And it is everyone. I had three people tell me it's an Idaho accent. So just remember people are from different places. We all talk different.
1: Well, at least they didn't (laughs) say you were annoying like me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's one review that says she's annoying, but she's not. It's like, and that well... she should
1: get a new co-host. So I was like, "Go
0: for it, <laughs> or do it by yourself." Well, that's not really gonna make us do that. So either get used to it. You,
1: you would do so awesome without me, though. Oh my god. I gosh. always tell you
0: that. uh, a lot I'm of always like you should do it alone. No, a lot of people love you. I don't know why that one person doesn't, but that's what... oh well. Not
1: everyone's gonna not think I'm
0: annoying so we, I don't care. I'm sure plenty of people think I'm annoying but it, they're just so funny it just cracked me up but I was like okay I'm gonna let that person know that it's an Idaho thing and I'm from Idaho so I had multiple people tell me that that same thing happened to them where they've been told they don't pronounce their t's. Now you guys are gonna hear me over pronounce them probably. I'll be focusing on saying my t's.
1: But I went back and listened, and I I can hear your tease, so I I don't get it. Maybe I'm just used to it.
0: I wonder if it's when I'm talking fast, like when me and you are talking back and forth, and I'm not, like, thinking so much about, like, pronunciation, and I'm saying, like, I don't know. Like, I guess I don't say it when i'm saying i don't know fast or stuff like that like i don't know i can do it you guys it just not it's not natural
1: <laughs> well i know like we, in utah we get made fun of because we say mountains
0: uh-huh or like
1: mountain um, like mountain
0: you're not, yep
1: instead of mountain
0: mountain we can say it we're just from a different area than you're probably from so if you want to revise that three-star to a five-star, that'd be awesome. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was so funny. Getting back into this, this is part two, so let's recap a little bit on part one. We left off last week finding out that Clarence Hughes was really an al- alias for fugitive Franklin Floyd, who had been on the run for 17 years. After he got in trouble on pro- probation, he had been in a bunch of trouble in his younger years, which we'll get into in later um, for things such as kidnapping and raping a little girl he was just like a career criminal and this information showed us that his wife tanya hughes was also using an alias but we don't know what her true identity is and that takes us back to the very beginning of last week's episode where we now realize that michael hughes was kidnapped by franklin floyd his fake dad Franklin was the man who had raised Michael from age zero to two with his wife, Tanya, before she died, and Michael was permanently placed with another family in the foster care system. So at this point, the aliases are revealed. Tanya's death is ruled a suicide, and all those she worked with for the short nine months she was in Tulsa are super suspicious about her husband. He runs, leaving Tulsa, and four years later, kidnaps Michael.
1: A suicide I thought it, she got ran over. Did I say? You meant homicide?
0: Oh, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I meant a homicide. I'm like, what did I miss? Because I thought someone ran over her. The, that is me. I was like a suicide. I don't think I said a suicide. Yeah, a homicide. Okay, got it. <laughs> My bad. I uh, intermixed those words. Yes. Her death is ruled a homicide. And all those who she worked with were super suspicious about her husband. And then he leaves Tulsa and four years later, he kidnaps Michael from his foster family straight out of his elementary school. And I mentioned at the end of episode one that at the time Franklin kidnaps Michael, police did in fact know that he was Franklin, a fugitive. So what happened during those years between the time Franklin goes on the run from Tulsa and the time he kidnaps Michael? Let's jump back into this case right there. So after trying to make a claim on Tanya's life insurance, Franklin realizes that the third social security number would have alerted alerted the agency that he was a man on the run. This is when he dips out of Tulsa, literally hours after Tanya's funeral. You know, the one where all the police came, they show up midway through, they take Tanya's body back for evidence in what they describe as an ongoing investigation into her death. Roughly a month and a half after Franklin flees Tulsa, investigators receive a tip that he was living in a trailer about 14 hours away in Augusta, Georgia. While there, Franklin continued to use different aliases. Clarence Hughes, Preston Morgan, Whistle Bridges, Floyd, and Kingfish Floyd. At the time he is arrested, he had been using the name Tretton B. Davis.
1: I'm sorry, Kingfish?
0: I know. I thought those aliases were weird too. Like whistle bridges floyd and kingfish floyd but he says most of the aliases he got were off of grave like headstones from graves so i don't know if he made those ones up or if he really found them and he liked that they had his same name his same last name floyd
1: i feel like that would just put more of a target on you you think you would want to just have a you know common name Kingfish isn't that common.
0: Yeah. Instead of this like really out there name. I agree. Like he just would want a basic name. I was trying to think of a basic name. But I can't think on the spot.
1: <laughs> like John.
0: Yes. Or like, like John. Michael. Well I
1: guess his son was Michael. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. Like yes. uh, David. Something
0: simple. Yes. Yeah. John's like the perfect. Perfect explanation. So. Uh, Franklin had stayed low-key by working self-employed jobs, such as painting or carpentry, and this way he didn't have to provide birth certificates or social security numbers. He would get hired directly, and without being an employee, he didn't really have anyone asking for these documents. Most of the aliases Franklin had taken on over the years had been taken off of headstones, just like he had with the aliases him and his wife took on in Tulsa, Clarence Hughes and Tanya Don Tadlock. So with that tip, it's Deputy U.S. Marshals that surround a trailer home in Augusta, Georgia, at 3:30 a.m. and out walks Franklin Delano Floyd. With their fre- fre- wow, can't talk. With their federal fugitive warrant, officers arrest Franklin and haul him over to the Augusta-Richmond County Joint Law Enforcement Center. While he is here waiting to be arraigned, he makes a call to an old buddy, David Dial. Franklin had become friends with David way back in the day while they were serving time in prison together, and David just happened to live there in Augusta, Georgia. Franklin had asked David to go to his trailer and gather all of his belongings. And David is also the man who had posted bail for Franklin way back in 1973. This is when Franklin officially started his 17 year long run as a fugitive. The two friends had pretty much been out of touch since that incident, except for one phone call that Franklin makes to David in 1989. And this was at a time Franklin was leaving Florida. This comes back, so just keep it in the back of your mind. Once Franklin is arraigned, he's taken to the federal correctional facility in Atlanta. He's waiting here until he's transferred to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he would be sentenced. This is an area. It, this is the area he ran from, so he's being sent back there. But before it happens, Franklin makes a call to the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. He's like, hey, so funny thing, you guys have my son, Michael, and I've been MIA for the last six weeks, but I was just arrested as a federal fugitive. I know this looks bad, but no worries. I just need you guys to continue taking care of Michael. I'm going to serve my time and change my life around. And then when I get out of prison, I'll come back to pick up Michael. So Franklin's like full on expecting he can just go to prison and it will be no big deal to get Michael back afterwards.
1: That's weird.
0: So weird. <laughs> it's like, why, why do you think that? But
1: how long was his sentence?
0: So his sentence ends up being 33 months. and like To me and you, that seems like not possible that he would just be able to go to prison for being a literal fugitive on the run and under investigation for his wife's death, who police can't even figure out who she really is because he won't tell them, and then he'll just get his son back. But the thing is, is he's not entirely wrong because he was extremely close to regaining custody before that paternity test comes back negative. And that's not actually the reason he fully loses custody. And we'll get into all of that. So we know in part one that he like refuses the paternity test and then he takes the paternity test it comes back negative and they take his rights but that's not quite where this ends with Michael so Franklin seems crazy that he thinks he can just go to prison and get Michael back but he's not that crazy I guess because it basically works
1: what oh my gosh are you serious I know
0: it yeah it's shocking honestly
1: no, honestly I don't know The stuff the state does does not shock me anymore.
0: I know. The systems are broken. And you've seen it just in your job. Yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating. So when Michael first went into the care of Merle and Ernest Bean, he was a super tough little cookie. He was two years old at the time, and he was throwing tantrums left and right. Merle was told that Clarence Hughes, who we now know as Franklin Floyd, insisted Michael be allowed to drink Pepsi whenever he wanted. The Beans were never to tell him no, but Meryl knows better. She's been a foster parent to countless children. She loved her role of being a nurturing mother. There's no way she's going to let this two-year-old suck down nothing except Pepsi. So she starts immediately taking the steps to change little Michael's habits. But this was not an easy feat. Michael was troubled, anxious, and sad. At one point, Merle had even made a phone call to DHS asking them not to make her keep this boy for a long period of time because it was draining her. But with the Beans' constant love, structure, and care, Michael does start to make a turnaround for the better. And with each passing day, the Beans fall a little more in love with him. At one point, they were ordered to take Michael to counseling and the counselor comes back telling Merrill and DHS that Michael is not troubled. He's just a perfect little boy. But Meryl scoffs. She explains that Michael is sweet and perfect when he's getting what he wants. But she challenged the counselor to put Michael into a situation where he would be denied something he wanted. So more evaluations are done and the counselor does have to change his determination. And this is when Michael is deemed to be behind in his learning skills. We discussed all of that at the beginning of part one. So... On August 23rd, 1990, there is a juvenile court hearing to determine where DHS goes with Michael from here. Franklin is in prison and Michael is with the Beans. Franklin's attorney is a man named Mac Martin. He had hired Mac months earlier during the time leading up to Tanya's funeral because Franklin had to fight the narrative that Connie had told DHS. Connie had said that Michael was a deprived little boy and was being abused. So Franklin continues with Mac Martin, who argues for him in this juvenile court, saying that Franklin will do whatever he has to do to regain his custody upon his release. He will take a parenting class, and he'll write to his son weekly. But the Oklahoma DHS explains that it's a bit of a strange situation. First, Franklin handed Michael over to DHS voluntarily after Tanya had died, and it was him who failed to pick Michael back up on May 7th. That was the original date agreed upon, but Franklin had gone on the run, failing to pick Michael back up, and that was a bad look. Regardless of this, in the conclusion of this court hearing, DHS agrees that Franklin Floyd can regain custody of Michael following his release from prison as long as he does what the courts ask of him. Again, I do not understand how it even comes to this agreement because Franklin is literally a straight-up fugitive for almost two decades. He's used all these police, all these aliases, so police don't even know what he's up to during that time. He's married to a woman that Oklahoma investigators believe he killed, but they can't figure out her background because she also had an alias, and Franklin will not tell them who she is. And he had previously been in trouble for the rape of a four-year-old before he goes on the run he has this long history of criminal activity but they're like yeah let's give him custody back of this child i wonder
1: if they knew all this stuff or if they just knew they did you know what happened in their state
0: no they knew because at this time they know he is a fugitive and they know why So anyway, about four months later, in December of 1990, Franklin is sent to the federal prison, El Reno, near Oklahoma City. Now he is close to Michael, who is under the care of the Beans in Choctaw, less than an hour drive from the prison. Franklin takes this opportunity to fight for visitation with Michael and he freaking wins it so the beans have to drive Michael weekly to the El Reno prison hand him off to a social worker who then takes him inside the prison to visit with his dad wow really strange so the first visit it happens after eight months of Michael having no contact with with Franklin and it was on January it was in January of 1991 The Beans say that Michael hated these trips, especially at first. He would wail in his car seat and fight to stay in the car, and when Michael came back home to the Beans, he was often withdrawn and distressed. They complained to DHS that these prison visits are super unhealthy for the little boy who is making good progress at their home and starting to be able to live a more normal life. But DHS workers report opposing opinions. They say that during the prison visits, Michael was not scared. They witnessed him show affection to Franklin and play with the man, so the visits continue. During a review hearing on February 7th, 1991, the court solidifies their decision to allow Franklin to regain custody of Michael as long as he follows the court orders. On top of this, they order the beans to have Michael circumcised because these are Franklin's wishes. And that just like pissed me off for some reason. Because
1: (laughs) why did he care?
0: Well, I know it's like, okay, he's two years old at this point. If you wanted that done, you could have done it when he was born and in your care. And then you're just going to force the Beans to do it and to like care for him in the aftermath. It seems like it almost seems just like a power move. Franklin, seeing if he can get them to have to do something he wants.
1: It's just such an odd request. Like just do it when you get him back.
0: Literally, I think it wasn't for Michael. It wasn't even what exactly he wanted. I think he just wanted to be able to be like, I'm his dad. You have to do this. I'm having the court order you to do this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is pretty important to people. I'm shocked at like how many parents ask me, like their baby's like severely ill and sick and nearing death. And they're like, when can my baby get a circumcision?
0: Let's just not worry about that right now. <laughs> can happen at any point <laughs> in their <laughs> like, life.
1: Really? Oh <sighs> my goodness.
0: Yeah, that is kind of crazy, especially when they're all sick. Like we don't have to worry about that yet. But it's just, yeah, I think it's a power move on Franklin's part, and I don't think he actually cares about it. I think he just wants to feel like a sense of control when he really has none. So, it's during that same February hearing that the paternity test is ordered. We know that Franklin first refuses the test, and a year later, on January 9th, 1992, there is another hearing. Mac Martin presents the evidence that Franklin had, has completed parenting classes while in prison, and he also submits a marriage license showing that Franklin and Tanya had been married in New Orleans in 1989. He also submits a marriage license showing that Franklin and Tanya had been married in New Orleans in 1989, one year after they had Michael in Alabama in 1988. And the court is like, cool, but did he ever complete that paternity test we ordered a full year ago? No, he had not, so it's ordered a second time. This is when Franklin turns in that positive behavior morandum that I mentioned in part one. But still, it's not enough for the court. And Franklin is ordered in July of 1992 to have the test done, no exceptions we know this test comes back showing the court that Franklin was not Michael's father, and this is when his rights are terminated. He can stop paying child support and Michael's visits to the prison end. Mac Martin and Franklin Floyd fight this decision, filing paperwork to take the case to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. At the same time, the Beans file paperwork to adopt Michael Hughes. So after serving two years and nine months, Franklin is released from the El Reno prison on March 30th, 1993. He should have been assigned to a parole officer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where Franklin was convicted, and traditionally, once an inmate is released, they're sent back to where they were convicted for parole. But Franklin has other plans. He wants to be in Oklahoma City and stay nearby the Beans where Michael was living. He argued that there was continuing litigation in that case. The court agrees and allows Franklin to live in Oklahoma City, assigning him parole officer Gary Holman. Gary didn't take too kindly to Franklin. Something just felt off about him and the many years that Franklin was on the run. What was he doing all of that time? Gary also didn't like that Franklin was still the only suspect in the murder of Tanya Don Hughes, and it really rubbed him the wrong way since Franklin was able to collect the money from her life insurance policies. Since charges had never been brought against him in the case, the insurance company agrees to the payout. Again... My mind is boggled because how like sure when no charges are brought upon someone it usually means a spouse can get the insurance money even if they're suspicious but in this case Tanya's life insurance is supposed to go to a man named Clarence Hughes. So Franklin can like full-on admit that this is a fake name. They can admit that Tanya's name is fake. He's really a criminal and they just they still allow him to collect the money i don't get it how because it's like so they know tanya has this life insurance policy but she's not really tanya plus even with that the beneficiary is clarence hughes not franklin floyd i
1: would think the insurance company would do anything to get out of it and so that'd be a really (laughs) easy excuse
0: it's like oh yeah that's a void because you you're not clarence That's voided. You guys lied. These aren't your real identities. So therefore, these insurance policies don't stand. But he collects them and gets about $80,000. Yeah. Shocking, again, to say the least. And only three months after being released from prison, Franklin's case makes it to the Oklahoma Supreme Court in July of 1993. They reverse the decision to terminate Franklin's parental rights. The trial court hadn't allowed for an evidentiary hearing where Franklin could argue against the results of the paternity test. So the Supreme Court says Franklin's rights were violated. It's agreed that a new hearing will be held and visitation will start up again in the meantime. So he has rights to Michael again or has the chance to get him back. And this is when the fight for Michael becomes really relentless on Franklin's end. He's putting rumors forward, claiming that the Beans choke Michael and he isn't safe with them. He forces the court to order that the Beans cannot give Michael a haircut. He's literally on one. There's a clip from these hearings in the Netflix documentary. Franklin is talking in court and he says, quote, My son is punished for wanting to see his dad locked in his room and his toys are taken away and he's told that his dad is a mean man. You cannot allow the removal of a child from a non-proven abusive home due to a wet diaper or perceived lack of affection, which I was unable to give my son during a period of a week time when my wife died tragically. It's like... Yeah, but you can take a child away from a 17-year fugitive who no one knows who he really is and is proven that you're not the dad.
1: I uh, I just have no words. I'm dumbfounded.
0: Literally shocked when I found out that. They reversed the decision. So it's the following year in 1994, the same year that Michael ends up being kidnapped when five-year-old Michael visits with Franklin at Mac Martin's office. Mac Martin had left the office for about 20 minutes, leaving Michael alone with with his dad, who everyone knows is, you know, not biologically his dad at this point. And then when Michael comes home to the beans, he gets into bed, but he still has his shoes on. Merle laughs and tells him that he can't sleep with his shoes on. But Michael shoots back at her, telling her that he's not allowed to take his shoes off. His dad told him not to. Meryl doesn't have a good feeling about it, so she removes the shoes herself, and inside one of Michael's socks, there's a picture of Franklin Floyd. Franklin ends up getting a full-time job and an apartment, and he thinks this is going to make him appear stable enough to get Michael back. Their monthly visits are supervised by Dr. Bruce Pickens, and Franklin wants these supervised visits to increase to two a month, but this is denied. So he decides to have some psych evaluations done by Dr. Eleanor Jensen. He undergoes three sessions. Dr. Jensen finds him to be defensive and nervous. Jensen found that years of living in an orphanage and then his time in prison was weighing heavy on Franklin's mental health. He was depressed. Ultimately, this doctor decides she doesn't believe Franklin is just a natural criminal. He's just a good guy going through tough things, and she recommends that reunification is done with Michael ASAP. So, that job Franklin is working was as a maintenance man for the Lyrewood Point Apartments Complex. This gives him access to a master key that allows him into any apartment. Never okay, because I've heard far too many horror stories about maintenance men with master keys going into people's apartments assaulting them killing them i just i something different has to be done for maintenance men how
1: did he even get that job they probably who knows i mean yes people like you know they get out of prison need to get jobs and stuff but
0: of course
1: not access to people's apartments, anyone's
0: home yeah. when you're like a proven liar and manipulator <laughs> yeah not good So, with that key, Franklin lets himself into the apartment of a woman named Carrie Box. He had had his eye on her for a while. It was July 4th, and Carrie had been out and about celebrating Independence Day with her friends. Carrie and her boyfriend left their friends home that evening and waged a little bet. Carrie was young and healthy in her early 20s, and she tells her boyfriend that she's pretty sure she can make it to their apartment first by running. It was only a few blocks away and the bet is on. Carrie starts her run home while her boyfriend races out to their car, starts it, and then begins the drive home. Unfortunately, Carrie wins this bet, making it to their front door first. She walks inside and is surprised by the sight of a man holding her underwear close to his face. He's sniffing it and he's also holding a knife. This is Franklin Floyd. Ew. Like, disgusting. She's shocked, obviously, and when the two lock eyes, Franklin rushes Carrie and takes her to the ground. Carrie is fighting for her life, her arms are getting repeatedly slashed by the knife in Franklin's hand, and he's screaming at her that he's only doing this because her boyfriend paid him to do it. Thankfully, Carrie's boyfriend is not far behind her, and when he walks into the scene, he goes into fight mode, grabbing Franklin and trying to take him down. But Franklin is able to scramble away and run out of the front door. And Carrie's boyfriend is not going to let her attack or get away this easily. He runs after him and he is able to catch Franklin, holding him down while 911 is called and police make their way to the scene. Franklin is arrested and charged with aggravated assault. And parole officer Gary Holman tells authorities that under no circumstances should Franklin be released on bail. But after Mack Martin argues for Franklin, he is released on a $7,000 bond. Franklin goes to a halfway house, which he had lived in before after being released from El Reno, and he is fired from his maintenance job, of course, and starts working as a painter. The evidentiary hearing in Franklin's custody case is set for September 23rd, 1994. But he knows he has dug himself into a deep hole. He is not going to get Michael back now. This is when he decides to do the unthinkable and kidnap Michael Hughes from his elementary school. Remember, Michael was kidnapped on September 12th, just 13 days before the hearing was set. So following Michael's kidnapping, the news outlets are blasting this case. It's everywhere. There's a search for this little boy. Keep your eyes out. These news stories quickly explain the situation as best they can. Tanya Dawn Tadlock Hughes' son, Michael Hughes, has been kidnapped by his father, formerly known as Clarence Hughes, but was really a fugitive, and his real name is Franklin Floyd. The news stories show pictures of the family, of Tanya, of Michael, of Clarence, a.k.a. Franklin, hoping to jog people's memories of seeing the two. They needed tips badly. On November 15, 1994, a woman named Jennifer Fisher Tanner gets a call from her mom. Sue calls to tell Jennifer that she thinks she has found a high school friend of Jennifer's. Her best friend from school had gone MIA a couple years after moving away. The girls had stayed close, but one day communication just ended back in 1988. For the last six years, Jennifer had tried to find her friend. She never stopped wondering where she was. So when Jennifer's mom is telling her that they've finally found this friend, she is ecstatic. Where has she been? How can I get a hold of her? Her mom's tone comes back, though, not really meeting Jennifer's. Her mom isn't ecstatic. She sounds sullen. Sue tells Jennifer that her friend is dead, but there's something really weird about it. You see, this friend of Jennifer's was a girl named Sharon Marshall. But Sue tells her daughter that Sharon's picture was on the news. Except they weren't calling her by her name. They were calling the girl in the picture Tanya. But Sue knows without a doubt that this is Sharon Marshall. The news is saying that she was hit by a car four years ago. Her son has now been kidnapped. And Sue goes on to explain that a picture of Sharon's dad was also shown on the news. They're saying her her dad was her husband. He used an Aliens of Clarence Hughes. I guess we really didn't know Warren Marshall. His real name is Franklin Delano Floyd. He's the one who kidnapped her son.
1: Wouldn't that be crazy to just see that story and you're like, that's not her husband, that's her dad.
0: Shocking. It would be so confusing.
1: It would just be mind blowing because you just wouldn't get it.
0: I feel like you could almost talk yourself out of even believing it is the people you know. True. Like, wow, they look so similar, but but like, what a weird (laughs) story. Yeah. So I'm glad she like saw it and was like, no, I know these people. This is weird because this changes like everything about the investigation. Well, that's
1: interesting. Do they call in? Yeah.
0: Jennifer will call in. And, you know, up to this point, the investigators only know Tanya as Tanya. They don't know her real identity and they just... All they know of her is that she was someone working at a strip club that had this kid. So Jennifer like gives tons of insight into what's really going on and When she hears this news, she's like crumbling on the floor in front of her husband, Zach Tanner. She can't speak. She can only cry. She doesn't know what's happening. How could her friend have died four years ago without her knowing? What does her mom mean? Sharon's dad was her husband and he kidnapped her son. She always knew something was disturbing about Warren Marshall. So Jennifer and Sue are recognizing the images of Clarence Hughes slash Franklin Floyd and his wife Tanya Hughes as being these completely different people. Not a husband and wife but a father and a daughter. They knew the man in the picture to be Warren Marshall, the dad of Jennifer's high school best friend. The girl in the picture was so clearly her old bestie, Sharon Marshall. So Jennifer makes that call to the FBI. Joe Fitzpatrick had called Jennifer back the day after her initial call. He was an investigator with the FBI who had taken on this case. He believed her, that the girl in the picture was her best friend from high school. We know in cases like this, a lot of people just try to get involved, and with the little information investigators had on Tanya, this could have been easy for someone to do to make up a story, but Jennifer seemed genuine. Two months later, Jennifer flies from California to Oklahoma City to meet Joe Fitzpatrick, Ed Cumega, and Mark Nancy. They all agree to use the name Sharon, as it seems like that is the name she went by most of her life. She only used the name Tanya for nine months. So Jennifer explains to investigators that the man in the photos was Sharon's dad, and her family found him strange, but would have never expected this. He seemed like a good dad because Sharon had turned out so incredible. The investigators are a little taken back. Like, what do you mean? She was working as a stripper and a sex worker. And now Jennifer is kind of pissed, asking investigators what they're talking about. The Sharon she knew was a straight A student. She was in the honors program, super involved with her school, joining clubs like ROTC and received a scholarship to Georgia Tech University. Investigators actually didn't believe Jennifer for a moment. They were shocked by this revelation. So, who was the girl that Jennifer knew as Sharon Marshall? In 1983, Sharon had spent a semester at Riverdale High School, which was located near Forest Park, Georgia. After one semester, Warren Marshall was looking to transfer his daughter. So, in November of that year, Warren and Sharon met with Terry McGarrow. She's a teacher at Forest Park High School. And Warren tells Terry that he wasn't pleased with nearby Riverdale with the nearby Riverdale school their education was not up to par and he goes on to tell Terry that he expects the best for his daughter her mom had died when Sharon was young and he's been raising her as a single father for all of these years Terry was impressed with both Warren and Sharon he seemed like a great dad and Sharon had received high grades during her time at Riverdale so it's set up Sharon Marshall would be officially transferring to Forest Park High School and this would be her fourth school transfer within the last 12 months. Sharon loved gaining knowledge and getting involved with her school, so of course when she enrolls, she gets involved with clubs like ROTC and Student Council. And when summer arrives, after Sharon's first semester at Forest Park High School, she is attending a summer camp in July of 1984. It's a leadership workshop with students from all over Georgia coming together. The students attending this workshop were ones elected by their fellow classmates. It was during this workshop that Sharon Marshall meets Jennifer Fisher. She was from Stone Mountain, Georgia, and was an incoming freshman at Tucker High School. The two girls just hit it off during a friendship building activity. Jennifer admired Sharon's thirst for knowledge and the way she had these really big dreams. Sharon tells Jennifer that she wanted to be an aerospace engineer, and she planned to get this degree at Georgia Tech. Jennifer was just in awe because she thinks this girl is really cool and soon Jennifer realizes that Sharon is also super strong and brave when Sharon explains to her that she was the only child and her dad was a single father who worked hard as a painter to provide for them. Sharon had to help take care of her dad because when she was seven years old her mom was killed in a hit and run accident. This story is eerily similar to the way Sharon Marshall ends up, yeah, being killed. Oh my. Which I'm assuming is a story Warren Marshall told Sharon to tell people. Yes. And then it happens to her because he is probably also the one who decided how Sharon would die. So. It seems that Sharon is a couple years older than Jennifer because following that summer, Sharon, uh, Jennifer's going into her freshman year while Sharon is going into her junior year. As the summer workshop is coming to a close, the girls dread leaving each other's side. Since they had met, the two had gone to every class and event together. And on the last day, Jennifer asked Sharon for her phone number. We just have to hang out soon. I'm going to miss you so much. But Sharon gets nervous, telling Jennifer that she is not allowed to give anyone her home phone number. And Jennifer's shocked, pulling out a piece of paper like, okay, well, here's my phone number, just give me a call. As the summer days go on, Jennifer waits for a call from her new friend, but the call never comes. Ultimately, Jennifer becomes too desperate, she doesn't want to wait anymore, so one night she sneaks into her brother's room to use his landline phone. She had just gone through all of the student council paperwork from that summer workshop and bingo, she found Sharon's phone number. So Jennifer dials and when she hears Sharon say hello from the other end of the line, she's super pumped. It's me, Jennifer. I haven't heard from you. I'm so happy I found your number. But Sharon is annoyed and in a soft voice, she asks Jennifer how she had found her home phone number. Then she tells Jennifer that she wasn't supposed to call, and her number should not have been listed in that paperwork. It's about this time during the phone call that a man's voice can be heard yelling in the background, asking Sharon who was on the phone and how they had this number. And then Jennifer can hear the phone being taken from Sharon and slammed down. It was hung up. Jennifer was hurt and disappointed but that didn't last long because Sharon calls back later explaining that her dad was just upset someone had gotten their number since she isn't supposed to be giving it out. He would allow Sharon to call Jennifer from here on and the girls built their friendship from there. Soon Sharon is allowed to come to the Fisher's home for a sleepover and Jennifer's parents fall in love with Sharon. She was intelligent and determined They thought Sharon was a good influence on their daughter. Sharon's dad, however, was less than normal. He just rubbed the Fishers the wrong way. While dropping Sharon off for the girls' first sleepover, Warren makes sure to let Joel Fisher know that he is a painter. He wants Jennifer's dad to recommend him for work to his neighbors. It
1: sounds like he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah,
0: like he just has a creepy essence.
1: Yeah, like those foster parents didn't like him.
0: Everyone kind of feels on edge.
1: These parents, you know, say that he rubs them the wrong way. That
0: goes to show just trust your gut. Mm -hmm. Because I think you can kind of feel when people like radiate evil, sort of. Yeah. And the sleepover goes great. Again, the Fishers love Sharon. But when Warren comes by the next morning to pick up Sharon, he takes Joel to the side and asks to borrow money. Joel refuses, and Warren keeps asking, basically begging. He says he needs money for an upcoming job, and as a single dad, he just didn't have it. But Joel trusted his gut, and something told him not to get involved with Warren in this way. The Fishers love Sharon, so they continue to let the girls be friends. But after a second time of Warren asking Jennifer's dad for money, Joel tells his wife, Sue, that Jennifer was never allowed to stay the night at the Marshalls' home. It just didn't feel right. And yeah, like, nope, it just doesn't seem like a good place for their daughter to go. I'm all for that. I probably like. It's sad because I liked having sleepovers and it feels like you're like making your kid miss out. But I also almost feel like I won't do sleepovers.
1: Oh, I'm sure you won't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm too nervous. But if their parents are fine, they can come to my house. (laughs) If their parents are fine with sleepovers, (gasps) I'll have it be really fun. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I don't know. Some kids, you know, like to do
0: both. I know. It's scary to... Like, think of that and how I'll navigate it. We'll see. Right now I'm saying none. So in 10 years, we'll check back and see if I've allowed none or if I allow some. I don't know. So anyway, it's as that school year comes, Jennifer's dad goes out of town one weekend and Jennifer is able to talk her mom into allowing a sleepover at Sharon's house just this one time. Jennifer had actually asked earlier when her dad was in town, and it was a hard no. But Sue loved Sharon so much. She was an amazing young girl. Her home couldn't be that bad, could it? Joel just felt like she shouldn't be there, and he felt that for a reason.
1: Yeah, he probably had more interaction with the dad since he was asking him for money.
0: Yeah, especially because he pulls him to the side. He's, like, hearing him talk more. I mean,
1: and you do think, like, when kids are, like, really cool kids and, like, you know, super respectful and good. I mean, it it does make you think, like, oh, yeah, their parents are great. Yeah,
0: it leads you to believe they're growing up in a good home. They're being taught these manners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I definitely don't think Sue could have known. It's just, like, a sad mistake. So Jennifer goes for the sleepover, and shortly after she arrives, Warren asks the girls if they want him to take them out to a club so that they can go dancing. Jennifer is shocked and excited. She had never been dancing before. That was so cool Warren would take them. First, they were going to head to dinner, and on the way, Warren tells the girls it would be fun to go downtown and make fun of the, quote, prostitutes on the street. Oh, my. Like,
1: that is the uh, stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah.
0: So he literally says to these teenage girls, Jennifer, a freshman, Sharon, a junior, like, you know what would be super fun? Like, let's go make fun of these sex workers and, like, make fun of how they look and, like, what they're doing.
1: I would kill my daughter's I, friend's parents if they ever did that. Yeah.
0: Even if they just suggested it. Like, what are you talking about? I'd be
1: pissed even if they took him to a
0: club. For sure.
1: In ninth grade?
0: Like, no. No, 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 no. We don't do this. But of course, Warren's trying to, like, seem cool. I think he goes a little overboard with this, like, making fun of the sex workers thing. That doesn't seem cool. It probably gave a little bit of a creepy vibe. But at that point, Jennifer doesn't pay a lot of mind to it. Sharon had like quickly felt embarrassed and had told her dad that she does not feel like doing that tonight and this is when the idea of dancing had come up and so when Warren's like okay instead like how about I take you guys dancing. The girls shriek with excitement and they rush home to change into new outfits and while they're looking for something to wear jennifer notices skimpy dresses lingerie thongs crotchless panties jennifer was never allowed to dress in these outfits so she's like a little taken back but not in a wondering
1: like why does my friend have these yeah
0: but it was like at this time when she first sees it all she was not even it wasn't even in a bad way jennifer's almost like in awe like wow I can't believe you can wear these things like this is so beautiful like Mm. your dad lets you wear these and she's not thinking that that is like a red flag because she's a freshman Warren tells Sharon that she should have Jennifer wear this like little short mini skirt Sharon puts on a little like tight short dress and then he goes to drop them off at a little redneck bar. He talks with the bouncer who lets the girls in. And with that, the girls rush inside to dance. While they're dancing, Jennifer notices that Sharon really knows how to move. All the men are noticing her, but Sharon does a good job of just shooing them away. And the girls go on dancing the night away together. When they arrive back at the Marshall's home after a night of dancing, This is when Jennifer really took notice to the lingerie. Like she had seen it when they were going through the dresses, but this is when she like really looked at it. And this is when she tells Sharon that these are so beautiful. Like where does she even get this stuff? And Sharon tells Jennifer that her dad had bought it for her. And Jennifer thinks to herself, Warren was such a cool dad. But right as that thought crept in, Warren barges into the girls' room. Sharon is changing, she's half naked, so her breasts are exposed, and Warren is yielding a gun, and he's yelling to the girls, what are you guys doing? And Jennifer's completely taken back, she's scared, but then he just chuckles and walks back out of the room, and Sharon looks at Jennifer laughing, telling her that daddy was just being silly. This is the first time she's like, okay, I don't think Warren is very cool. As I thought he was earlier tonight. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: was probably a little scary.
0: Oh my gosh. That would be so scary. That like hurts me to even think of like your kid being in that situation. I know. Who is this weirdo? And it's just him and Sharon at home. So she's just there with this dude who's like a total creep. And she realizes it, I'm sure, all at once. They don't have cell phones at that point. She's just kind of stuck there.
1: Yeah, I was going to say they can't, she can't like get a hold of her mom to come get Yeah,
0: she's just like in this.
1: Cassie, who's a freshman, would be like, come get me now. Text me.
0: Cassie (laughs) would be like bawling her eyes out immediately. I think anyone, anybody would, but Cassie for sure would be (laughs) so scared.
1: She'd probably be scared when she saw the
0: lingerie lingerie (laughs) yes she is a very innocent little soul (laughs) she would be so freaked out but like I, I bet you most kids would just like kind of like they'd spend the night there and then decide like the next day like okay I'm not going back there again but in the moment it's like what do you do? That fear Jennifer's feeling in these moments, it's soon amplified when Warren Marshall comes into the bedroom that the girls are sleeping in and he rapes Sharon right there in front of Jennifer.
1: Oh, are you kidding? Literally
0: has sex with his daughter right in front of Jennifer. Like
1: they think she's asleep. No,
0: I think Jennifer, like I think they know. But Jennifer just lays there because the next morning after the rape Jennifer says that they just go to sleep. No one says anything. And the next morning, Sharon tells Jennifer, she says, you're going to be okay. I'm okay. Just don't worry about it. Uh. And then Jennifer goes home and obviously never again wants to spend the night at the Marshall's home. And what's sad is Jennifer was so scared. She never tells her parents about this until this is coming up. All these years later.
1: Oh, so her parents never knew?
0: Yeah. Not until Jennifer was way older.
1: I wonder if she kept hanging out with her.
0: She continued to hang out with her, but she refused to ever spend the night again. And Sharon would invite her to spend the night, but because... Like, I think Sharon would ask Jennifer to spend the night still because her dad was bothering her to have Jennifer spend the night. Oh, And... Jennifer refuses always and she always said that Sharon never was like upset about her refusing and was like almost relieved yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and even up until like later on Sharon moves and you know they stay in contact for a while Sharon does call Jennifer even at one point and is like you should come visit blah 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 and Jennifer won't because she doesn't want to go be around Warren Marshall yeah And even Warren calls her and, like, tells Jennifer what a crappy friend she is because she can't come visit Sharon.
1: She's like, look, the reason is because of you, you little creep.
0: Yeah, like, you're a straight-up creep. And who knows what he wanted Jennifer to come down for at that point.
1: Exactly. So. She saved herself, probably.
0: Literally, she probably did because this is where we're ending part two. Two, and there will be a part three. It will be the final part. And that's where we'll get into a little bit more about Sharon Marshall's life, how she ends up in Tulsa as Tanya. And leading to there, we will cover a murder that happens that leads to Sharon and Warren having to take on those aliases of Clarence and Tanya Hughes. And then we'll dive into who Sharon Marshall really is and where she came from. Oh
1: my gosh, it's so much.
0: Thanks for listening. Again, I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given by Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Also check us out on social, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And email us if you have any constructive criticism. Make sure to leave us a five-star review, especially after my three-star review about my disturbing teas. I would love it if you left me a five-star review. This would be the perfect time i love you <laughs> and check out our website at true exposed podcast.com hi my name is charlie waters and today we're going to be talking about roses my mom's favorite flower roses are one of the oldest flowers on earth and they're still alive did you know you can eat a rose they are edible R- roses are also a staple ingredient In the perfume industry. Roses are so beautiful. Bye. Have a great day. A great organization that you guys can check out this week is childfindofamerica.org. Childfind of America is bringing kids home, keeping them safe. You can go to their website and they have an option to click on My Child is Missing, an option for parent help, and an option for prevention, education, and training. You can also donate there on their website and find out more about them. They're a non-for-profit organization that provides professional services to prevent and resolve child abduction and the family conflicts that can lead to abduction of a child. Their programs are free and their services are available to children and families all over the globe. You can call them at 1-800-I-AM-LOST and that connects callers in their in-house location staff who search for missing kids, kidnapped, runaway, and abducted children. I think this is a great organization. They sound like they're doing amazing work. Go ahead and check out their website and if you can do so, always... I always encourage you to donate if you can. After 30 years of serving East Texas, you learn a few things. Things like service beyond compare, going the extra mile, leaving it better than you found it. We believe you should expect the best and get it. For more information on how you can schedule your appointment today or take advantage of our seasonal promotions, visit AlcoAir.com. License number PACLA 23812C and M41085. This is Craig Hudman from Iron Horse RV and Trailers. Why drive to Rexburg to make your next RV purchase? We are just better at what we do. No doubt you've experienced that buying process where you are trapped for hours on end and the excitement of your RV purchase gets sucked away. That is why you should take the drive. Your RV purchase should be easy and we will exceed your expectation. When the journey matters, see us. Iron Horse RV, exit 332 Rexburg. Across from Rexburg Motorsports, 24-7, ironhorservandtrailers.com.